two fan bases that are like totally designed to protect themselves and go at the other ones. You know, Americans are blaming Leeds for ruining their ruining their players. Leeds are blaming Americans for ruining their season. And Twitter brings out the ugliest of all involved. Ryan, welcome back. How are you? Good, good. It's uh, a lot has happened. The start of what should be a busy summer. So yeah, like you said, there's a lot to kind of dive into in, in different sections of North American soccer. Yeah, there's there's a lot to discuss on this grand Tuesday. Uh, but before we get into the USA-Mexico match, the trophies on the line, or anything else, I want to ask you about something that maybe fewer listeners may have been paying close attention to, although there were some funny clips of former U.S. national team stars covered in ice packs making the rounds. Uh, but you were on location covering the inaugural TST an acronym that stands for the soccer tournament, which I believe is a 7v7 extravaganza of current and former players duking it out for a million dollar prize. Ryan, how was your experience at this tournament and how would you explain this new uh, event to the unknowing listener? Yeah, so it was it was very interesting just because was the first time something like this had ever happened. It was modeled off the basketball tournament, which has been successful for a while now, but you know, they turned it into the soccer tournament, which was obviously super interesting just because there was real no precedent for what this was going to look like. And I think one of the most interesting things about it was asking teams in the lead up to the tournament what they thought these games would look like and no one really had any idea. Uh, it really took the first day for teams to kind of figure out what tactics to play, how to approach the game, how to approach subs, just because there were so many fun rules. You know, you had on the fly substitutions, you had a, a golden goal rule called tar target score time for when the game ended, you know, the winning team had to score one more goal while the other team had a chance to play catch up. So we're, there was all these little nuances and, and different things that made the tournament interesting. And like you said, it was it was very it was fun to follow it on the ground as everyone really figured out how it was all going to work. Just because it was it was very well organized, but also chaotic at the same time because no one really knew what was going on. There were some teams that you know had trained together. There were some teams who had just met each other the day before. There were some teams that had cryotherapy plan, and there were some teams whose recovery was literally orange slices, like a uh, like a kids team. So it was it was crazy in that you had all these big stars but it also had real like youth tournament vibe to the whole thing so it was it was a crazy weekend a lot a lot of fun good soccer played some some big names in there so yeah it was a it was a good one and i'm looking forward to uh hopefully they do it again next year yeah i was listening to the in soccer we trust podcast with a bunch of you know heath pierce jimmy conrad talking about the quality they they said i mean jimmy was playing in it so maybe he's biased but they were hyping up the quality of the play what, what was the level of that for you like and who who ended up the victor of, of that so yeah the quality was actually pretty high um like i said there were different sort of levels of teams you know when you looked at the the field before the tournament started i think we all would have pegged some of the legends teams as the favorites just because there were such big names in there like you look at at dortmund for example and dortmund had several players who like you know felipe santana kevin gross like who were who were like top players and and you looked at that squad and and thought that like they'd have a good run but they were blasted you know they lost all three games and were never really in the tournament i think the thing we learned as the tournament kind of went on was that the teams that had played together and had experience playing together were the ones that were going to kind of do it some of the legends teams crashed out pretty early just because they one weren't weren't used to playing together two weren't used to the heat the north carolina heat got a few of these teams and three you know they were just running into teams that that had trained together and were more you know used to the format the team that won it was newtown pride a bunch of those guys had played together they had arrived in north carolina early to get a few training sessions in together which gave them a huge advantage but yeah when you looked at the field they the, the teams that that knew each other were 
were the, um, the best off, whether that was the semi-pro teams, team from Como, uh, the second division club in Italy, which was managed by Cesc Fabregas. They did well because it was a lot of their U23 players that they brought in, so there was familiarity there. Um, so, yeah, the teams that knew each other were the ones that did the best, and I think a lot of these teams will take some lessons just in terms of team composition uh, from this first tournament as they go into the next one, hopefully. And what was the atmosphere like in terms of fans and spectators? Is it mostly like friends and, and family or where their pack stands? And then for you as the media, I mean, I know you were there 13 hour days. It sounds like very early. What was what was it like kind of on the ground for you? The fan atmosphere was actually really good. They, they kind of held it as like a festival type atmosphere where, you know, there were food trucks, there were vendors, there were sponsors. There were a whole chance to, to kind of get out there and just make like a soccer weekend of it, you know, and it was at Wake Med Soccer Park in Cary. So there was different fields and different games going on at all times. So they, they kind of really pushed the, the family aspect of it where you had a lot of parents with their kids just going around, you know, watching different games all day so that aspect of it was great and that if you were a, a soccer fan in the area and you wanted to just have a, a like a pretty good day out you know have some hot dogs and, and watch some some good soccer it was it was a great weekend for that so yeah the fan the fan aspect was fun and, and the stands were pretty packed for for some of the bigger games definitely a lot of just american soccer fans a lot of wrexham support as you would expect based on everything going on obviously wrexham had a team in the tournament and they were definitely the best represented team aside from maybe the u.s women's team uh just in terms of of fan support, chance for for Wrexham, chance for them. It was it was obviously a sign of the time showing how well supported they were. But yeah, just in terms of media, it was a great event just to talk to a lot of different types of people. And that you had big U.S. national team names like Clint Dempsey, Jermaine Jones, Jeff Cameron, Breck Shea all running around. And then you also had you know Wrexham legends. You had West Ham legends where you had like Anton Ferdinand and Carlton Cole. And then you had U.S. women's national team legends. You know Michelle Akers, Christy Lilly. Like it was just a wild collection of people. And then you mix in like Steve Nash and Chris Paul and Noah Beck and Chad Ochocinco. So it was sort of just the perfect mix of high level soccer, but also some really good entertainment and a really wild group of people out there playing what ended up being really competitive games, which which makes sense considering the money on the line. Yeah, that's the chaos. I didn't know that I needed. I might have to make it out. Where is the next tournament? Did they announce the location? They yet? haven't announced it yet. Uh, I believe there are plans for a next, another tournament. Everyone's hyping it up. I think everyone had a lot of fun at this one, and it'll be interesting to see what sorts of teams will participate when this is done again. Speaking of fun atmospheres, the atmospheres down in Argentina for the U20 World Cup have looked like a lot of fun, pretty full stands. The U.S. made a pretty strong run. They made it to the quarterfinals, which is where they've made it. Is this now the fifth tournament in a row yeah, that they made they, it to the quarterfinals? The quarterfinals, the quarterfinals has been the uh, the round for them, unfortunately, and uh, it got them again this time as they slipped up there once again. A lot to be excited about, but it wasn't to be. They lost to Uruguay. Ryan, what are you going to be remembering or taking away from that match specifically when they lost again in the quarterfinal? So I think the most frustrating part about that for the U.S. is that it wasn't necessarily due to tactics or talent or style of play or anything in that they simply lost that game because of two catastrophic defensive mistakes. And that's the thing is when you get to this level of the tournament, you just can't really afford those types of mistakes. You know, they avoided that the whole tournament. They hadn't conceded a goal until that first goal against Uruguay. They've been perfect. But that's sort of the fine margins you deal with the deeper you get into this tournament and that, you know, you can't afford to give chances to these teams that are going to make you pay for it. And when you have a team like Uruguay, who's a good team, you know, they obviously want if you reach the quarterfinal level, now the semifinal level, you got a squad. 
But um, if you give them a chance and they take it, they're going to be able to protect that lead. They're going to be able to handle the emotions of it all. And that's sort of what the U.S. You know, put themselves in. They dug themselves a hole by giving up that first goal. And by the time the own goal went in in the second half, you know, there was really no hope for it. But, yeah, the big takeaway, it's, it's not that Uruguay outplayed them. It's not they were, they were necessarily a significantly better team. They didn't necessarily have more talent. It's just that when you go out there and you just make horrible, horrible mistakes, that's kind of uh, what's the difference between advancing and not advancing when you play deep into tournaments like this. When they did go down, and that was the first goal they conceded in the tournament, do you think they looked mentally shaken at all? Do you think there's any kind of inexperience factor with those stakes and, and being behind that they didn't really overcome? I don't know if it was that necessarily they were mentally shaken. It was it was that on the other side of things, Uruguay then knew that they were in a good spot and could then kind of play a different type of game. They didn't have to come out and, and chase the game. They could let the U.S. chase them, and that was something that the U.S. hadn't really had to do necessarily. You know, I think of the guy who had kind of been key to opening things up was Diego Luna, like all through the tournament. And once Uruguay got the goal, goal every time he got the ball, he was absolutely surrounded. You know, they were kicking him, tackling him, bringing him down. And that was clearly part of their game plan was to not let him handle things. And, and when you get into a position where you're 1-0 up, it's even easier to do that because you could put a few more guys in that area to, to do things and, and make sure that he doesn't run the game. So like I said, I don't think it was necessarily that the U.S. didn't have the mental edge or the ability to do it. I think it just came down to a point where when you give a team like Uruguay a chance to, to dictate what that game's going to look like, it's tough to take that away from them unless you can kind of do something special. And it was one of those games where the U.S. never really found the ability to do anything special and and, and break that team down the way they needed to to open the game back up. From the youth level to the senior team level for Uruguay, they're a team that, you know, not only is technically talented, but they know how to scrap and they're quite a physical presence on the field. You know, I remember when we had that friendly preparing for the World Cup last summer with the senior teams in, in Kansas City. I mean, that was a tough physical battle in addition to everything else. And I think that showed up in this match Sunday. Do you think that our U20 squad could meet that physical battle? Do our guys know how to scrap? Yeah, I think that's like one of the things that's constantly brought up on Twitter every time the U.S. loses is like that American identity. It's like, oh, we lost that underdog mentality and like we lost the the mental edge that, you know, the teams of like the early 2000s had, you know, and that was obviously a key part of everything the U.S. did is that they had that underdog mentality. And when you look at the team now, it's 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 not as much of an underdog in that everyone is technically better and, and everyone is, is playing at higher levels and more accustomed to things. And there's not really as much of an us against the world mentality in that aspect. But, you know, I don't think it's fair to say that these U.S. guys like don't have that dog in them anymore. Uh, I think a lot of these kids, you know, especially with this U-20 team, a lot of them showed some guts throughout this tournament at some point. You know, it wasn't always easy for them. Like you said, playing their heart and emotion is, is definitely part of the Uruguayan soccer culture. And that's something that, you know, when you think of that country and how they play, it's they play physical, they play in your face, you know, they play hard to break down. But I don't think that's necessarily a shot at the U.S. to say that they haven't really played that way. They didn't really have to for a lot of this tournament and that they were the better team. They were dominating possession. They were the team that was creating chances. And I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. Obviously, there are times where you have to dig deep and those times are a little bit they're a little bit more few and far between than they used to be um which is should be a sign of progress not necessarily a sign of 
of something that the U.S. is lacking. You know, it's a good thing that the U.S. can can hold the ball now and, and, and try and break teams down instead of constantly, you know, having to be the, the team that's kind of surviving and fighting. So, like I said, I, I don't think it's necessarily that this team doesn't have that ability or, the, the, you know, the program doesn't have that ability. I just think it's, it's, it's not as necessary as it used to be. And I think it's easy for people to say that that's a negative thing, but it's also really easy to look at that as a positive if you're a glass half full person because the U.S. is, is kind of trying to play in a way where they, they don't have to play like that anymore. Realistically, big picture, what do you think can or should, if anything, be learned and taken away about the trajectory of American soccer as a whole from a U-20 World Cup team? So, yeah, that's that's one of the things that, you know, I was I was actually talking about with people at TSC this weekend is that obviously you want to win the U-20 World Cup. Like, that's great. Like, that's a huge, you know, moment for the program. But, like, the entire purpose of a U-20 team or a U-18 team or a U-17 team is to prepare players for the senior team. That's it. Everything else is extra. Everything else is a bonus. You know, if you win the World Cup, great. If you beat other teams, great. But the whole purpose of this team is to have three, four, five guys become senior team regulars. So that's kind of really what the legacy of this team is going to be. It's, you know, when you look back at these players, it's not going to be like, oh, they lost that U-20 World Cup. It's going to be how many of these guys went on to the senior team by 2026 or by 2030. You know, how many of these guys made an impact? And when you look back at the the teams for, you know, the mid-2010s, that's kind of what the difference was in that those players did not be, make an impact on the senior level. So that by the time, you know, the 2018 World Cup rolled around, you had that period where it was Christian Pulisic and then a bunch of guys who were over 30 because there was no one kind of in that middle age group. So, yeah, the whole legacy of this team and the most important aspect of this is can a guy like Cade Cowell become a senior team contributor? Can a guy like... Jack McGlynn become a senior team contributor. Gaga Slonino, what's his progress look like? And, and how long is it until he's ready to play, uh, compete for that number one goal, uh, spot and goal? You know, can uh, Josh Winder, how does he develop? How does Caleb Wiley develop? There's so many players on this team that have the potential to be senior national team contributors. And the legacy of it will be when you look back in 10 years, how many of those guys have made an impact at a World Cup or a Gold Cup or Nations League or, or Copa America or whatever it is. So that's really all there is. You know, winning the World Cup would have been great for this team. And I'm sure a lot of them will would have been happy to lift that trophy at the end. But the most important thing is that you take whatever you learned from this experience and kind of apply it when you move up the ladder a little bit. You wrote an article kind of diving into not this team, but the last U20 World Cup team and where everybody has ended up. And of that team, not that many have really made an impact at the senior level. I think Serginho Dest and Tim Weah might be the only really obvious ones. Is there anyone else from that crew who you think has really made an impact on the national team? So yeah, that- What was that, 2019? Yeah. 2019, U20, yeah. Yeah, so that team's really interesting and in that like look, first of all, if you if you look at it, those players now are really in you know, they're 23, 24, 22, like in that seat that area. So a lot of them are still coming up. You know, you look at someone like Mark McKenzie, who's a guy who's been with the national team a bit, maybe hasn't cemented a spot, but he's in the mix. Uh Chris Richards, you know, injuries have kind of messed him up a little bit, but you know, he's someone who should be in the mix over the next few years. Uh, Julian Araujo is an interesting one just because he's obviously in the mix, but he's in the mix for Mexico. So, you know, that's that's one that kind of was that obviously is senior international caliber, but, you know, has kind of obviously taken his talent somewhere else. But yeah, that's the thing is with all these groups, you know, with a U20 World Cup af- happening every few years, the whole goal is to just get three or four guys that kind of, you know, make that leap. You know, you're really 
throwing a bunch of things at the wall and seeing what sticks here. Like when you look at this last U20 World Cup team, you know, you have a guy like uh, Conrad De La Fuente, who is someone that everyone kind of said, like, is going to be one of the next wingers. And obviously it hasn't panned out for him yet. But when you have 10 guys of that caliber on a U20 World Cup team, it's much easier to have five guys stick than when you're placing all your hopes on one guy to kind of be that guy. So that's all you're really hoping for is, you know, you look at this U20 team, you know, they had depth. They had a lot of players that contributed. They had a lot of players that are already playing on their club level. They had a few that are in Europe and a few who are going to go there soon. They had a few guys who weren't even with the team that are playing at a high level, someone like Paxton Aronson. Um, so, yeah, all you're really looking for is to have a couple of these guys take the leap in the next few years. And the more guys you have that you feel like you can believe in, the more likely that is to happen. So, like I said, I think that's the legacy of what this team will look like. Um, we're still kind of going to figure out what the legacy of the 2019 looks like because we're kind of in a, a weird spot with them just because they are still so young and there's a few of them that could still kind of rise up the rankings. But, yeah, that's all you're looking for. If you can get three or four or five guys, like, that's great. And then you kind of just repeat the process with every other U20 team, and that's how you keep a player pool ticking over. Near term, thinking about the development of those players, the ones that stand out. You know, I spend a lot of time talking about the Philadelphia Union and the trajectory of, of those academy guys. I know Cade Cowell is someone a lot of people are high on. Diego Luna, when you think about that pursuit that you're mentioning, getting them to contribute to the national team, growing their careers, what do you want to see? Like, Do we want to see any of these guys called into the Gold Cup roster? And are any of them realistically ready for a jump to Europe? Or are these guys pretty much, they need to keep growing in MLS or domestically for now? I think first, just talking about Europe, I think a lot of European scouts would have seen uh, seen some players on this U.S. team that would have gotten them excited. Cade Cowell is the first one. And, you know, I think the thing when you look at Cade Cowell is that you see all the physical gifts and there's a player there. There's things that, you know, need to be refined. He's like nowhere near a finished product. But when you look at the dribbling ability and the pace and, and, and the strength, there's there's something under there that there will be a team in Europe that looks at it and goes like, yeah, we can figure that out. You know, there's just so much like raw material there that can be turned into something that there will be a team in Europe somewhere pretty good that will look at him and be like, there's there's something we can do with him. So, yeah, he's on one end of the spectrum. But then you have someone like Diego Luna, who's on the other end of the spectrum, who's just like so gifted technically. And there's questions maybe about, you know, his size or his athleticism or how he'll handle certain aspects of the game, especially since he doesn't have that many MLS minutes. So, like, he's another one to watch out for just because, like, I, maybe he's a player that elsewhere in Europe might be valued a little bit more than he would in MLS. You know, he's one of those types of guys. And then, you know, you brought up the union guys in McGlynn and Craig, especially like those two were incredible passing range, their technique, their ability to like, control the game was fantastic. But you kind of have to see what that next step looks like for them. You know, are they athletic enough to play at the top, top, top level in Europe is, is sort of the question because the technical ability seems like it's there. But do they have, you know, with Craig, does he have the movement speed to kind of play at the elite level in Europe? So that's something to watch, you know, with those guys. Yeah, obviously, McGlynn's gotten a lot of minutes. Craig hasn't gotten quite as many. You want to see them possibly get a few more minutes before they they make their leap, you know, abroad, like like Brendan Aronson, Paxton Aronson, Mark McKenzie. Obviously, there's a pipeline there. People know how good the union players are. But yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see now these guys, once they do come back to their MLS club, how many can get more minutes or how many make the move to Europe, you know, based off this tournament. So the next step's going to be different for all these guys just because they're all at, at different levels. You know, like for Diego Luna, you want him getting minutes with RSL and, and contributing to the MLS side while you know someone like Cade Cowell it's like all right well maybe it's time for him to to look at what comes next in Europe so it's it, everyone's kind of on a different playing field but I think 
the key thing is a lot of these guys will have gotten some eyeballs on them that maybe wouldn't have been on them before. Shifting to the national team level. So the last time you joined the podcast, we did a deep debrief into the performance in, in Qatar. We you know, looked forward to the future and, and talked about how tracking the national team and so much of tracking the national team is watching and observing the progress of individuals at the club level, often abroad. And then the trajectory of the national team is very much tied to that. With that in mind, it's been about five months. The seasons are at a close now. What do you make of that second term performance of the Americans abroad after the World Cup? Yeah, uh, to put it lightly, it was a pretty crappy year uh, for most Americans abroad. I know that was one thing that I did uh, with goal is they asked me to, to sort of rank the season for the Americans in the Premier League. And it was like, all right, you have Tim Ream and, and Anthony Robinson and Tyler Adams. And then it was like, everyone else didn't exactly have a good time. And I, th I think I put Christian Pulisic fourth. And just having him fourth, given how little he played, really kind of showed how bad it was for everyone else. So, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a tough year between, you know, the guys in the Premier League. Obviously, Gio didn't get as many minutes as he would have wanted, despite having ridiculous production in terms of, you know, his goals per minute and all that stuff. So, yeah, when you look at the key players... You know, obviously, like, like Tim Ream got hurt, you know, like Tyler Adams got hurt. It was there was just like so many things that kind of went wrong. There weren't many big winners for the second half of the European season, which is why heading to this Nations League camp uh, with one of the big winners being the new face in camp and Flo Balogun is what makes everything so interesting. Like I said, a lot of the big names are kind of in spots where they're uncertain about where they're going to be next year or what their role is going to be. It's a really interesting time just because I think this is the most uncertain things have been on the club level for Americans in some time and that you're going to see if you had an ideal starting 11, four or five, six of those guys in different places by the start of the season, probably. Yeah, it's pretty disappointing because, you know, even though I thought the quarterfinal exit against the Netherlands was, you know, I think you had phrased it as a par performance, and I'd agree with that. But individually, a lot of these guys had played really well. Weston McKennie had a great tournament. Christian Plissick had did was incredible, I thought, at the World Cup. And then he comes back to have a really tough, you know, five months with Chelsea. What are you chalking up this five-month period to? Is it just a collection of bad luck for almost every Guy, Serginio Dest, Yunus Musa, Christian Plesic, Weston McKenney, Brendan Aronson. Were, were we in any way overhyping players? Were they getting sent to the top of competition too soon? And now they're, you know, grappling a bit for, for playing time. What, what do you what do you make of this collective downturn? Yeah, so I think the first part of it is that so many of them hitched their wagon to leads, which, as it turned out, was a mistake. Uh, and that you had three key players all at the same club, which was not a club that was run well in the slightest. Um, you know, like you look at, you know, just Weston as an example. Weston played under four different coaches during a six-month loan spell. And it's like, yeah, that's just not like a functional way for a team to be run. You know, like no matter what the situation is. So, yeah, I think that's obviously a part of it. But there's also that overarching part in that it's just a lot of these guys didn't make the right move for themselves on the club level. And that dates back to even like when you look at like Ricardo Pepe at Augsburg, it's like, yeah, like you have to get that move right. 
and Serginio Desta AC Milan like wasn't the right move that didn't work for anyone and you know he ended up being benched like the whole second half of the season Christian Pulisic there was a lot of talk about him leaving in January to get more minutes and then he gets hurt and that kind of goes away and it's like yeah like a move there would have helped him like we said Weston joining Leeds wasn't the right move so I think that's like a really big part of it in that a lot of these guys ended up at clubs where they weren't in a position to succeed and then you look at even like Eunice Musa with Valencia. It was like, yeah, did he stick around Valencia a little bit too long based on, you know, the way that that club's kind of been in free fall mode. And he probably leaves this summer just because they need money. But like you look at it in that aspect and it's like there's a lot of guys who just were at clubs where it wasn't the right fit for them necessarily. And obviously part of that's on the club, you know, because a lot of these clubs are just not run well. But also it's on the players and that you have to one, make that right decision and two, kind of like make the best of it. And a lot of these guys weren't really able to make the best of it. There's a lot of moving pieces involved in Weston McKenney's move or loan spell with, with Leeds. Obviously, he thought he'd be playing for Jesse Marsh. Jesse Marsh was fired almost immediately as soon as he got there. Tyler Adams, who he thought he'd be playing with and is a good friend of his, I'm sure that living in the same city as him, let alone playing on the same field as him, was a big factor there. He was injured almost as soon as he got there. Uh, but it wasn't a good loan spell, even even outside of that. Do you think that the abuse and criticism he's been receiving has been fair? Or what, what did you make of how he has been received by the fans in Yorkshire? Yeah, I think this is like the perfect intersection of the worst parts of both American and English soccer. And that when you look at American soccer in this country, people are so protective over their national team players. Uh, almost to a fault, just because there is a deep insecurity about where our players fit on the global view. Just because up until, you know, what, 10 years ago, maybe, our players weren't respected. And that's that's a fact. The respect has grown, but there's still a lot of places where, you know, American players are looked down upon. And there's a lot of people in this country who are very sensitive about that. Then on the flip side, where you look at Leeds fans, there's a lot of sensitivity about where their club was in that a club as historic as they are in relegation zone, really struggling, having the recruitment be wrong, having the attitude of the team be wrong, four different managers, a lot of players that weren't necessarily Premier League quality. So it's just the perfect intersection of two fan bases that are like totally designed to protect themselves and go at the other ones. You know, Americans are blaming Leeds for ruining their ruining their players. Leeds are blaming Americans for ruining their season. And Twitter brings out the ugliest of all involved. So that's really it. And that you just really have two different camps that are extremely sensitive and protective over their own situation. And when a situation goes wrong, everybody's got to blame somebody. And it turned into a lot of blaming the other side. So, you know, were the American players great? No. They, they weren't. Um, was the club well run? No. Did everyone involved probably deserve to get relegated? Yeah. Like, it was bad. Like, no one was no one played well. The only person who really came out of this looking okay is Tyler Adams, and that's because he was fantastic <laughs> when he was on the field, and the season went off a cliff the second he got off the field. So that just shows how good he was. But, yeah, it's really just, uh, it's just a perfect or a very imperfect mix of a whole lot of people who are really upset. And that's kind of what leads to all of the backlash and criticism. And unfortunately for Weston, he was kind of on the end of it. He was very much made the the face of the Americans there, the scapegoat in a way. But also, like, obviously he doesn't deserve the criticism he got because so much of it was not done from a place of... It, it was not coming from a healthy place. It was not coming from a soccer place. It was come from a, a very unhappy place. 
but there's also no denying that Weston like wasn't good. So, you know, you can feel free to criticize how he played because it wasn't great. He was miscast. He was under different managers, whatever. There was a whole lot of reasons why he wasn't good. But the criticism obviously was harsh. So it, it's, it's, it's a tough thing for all involved. Everyone was unhappy. And that's kind of what leads to everyone acting out in the way they did. Yeah, I think it's a fascinating phenomenon, personally, what happens on Twitter and spilling out of it between the, the fan bases. It doesn't happen as much, I think, outside of the UK or players in playing in England specifically, in, in some part, but just because of the language barrier. Yeah. Comments on Twitter are not going to turn around as fast between Milan or, or Barcelona or Valencia as quickly as it would between us and Leeds because we speak the same language. I do think that's part of it on social media. I think there's a graduate level thesis worth studying between USMNT fans and the clubs in England where, where players go play. Because, you know, there's been tension with Christian Pulisic at Chelsea, maybe a similar but different thing happens. Obviously, the fan bases are very different. But I wonder, like, do you think this happens? You know, Celtic has, what, four Japanese players? Are there any wars between the Glaswegians and, and Japanese national team fan base? Does this happen with other federations? Are the Canadians fighting fighting wars with wherever their players are? Yeah, I think, I think a, a lot of it is the deep American sensitivity and, you know, uh to how the world perceives american soccer so i think that's part of it like you said the language thing is a huge part of it i think leeds was the perfect thing because there were just so many americans involved in that everyone in the u.s was kind of invested to a degree in that like with christian pulisic there like if you're not a chelsea fan you know a diehard u.s at mnt fan you're probably not you know on twitter arguing over that but leeds was seen very incorrectly as a referendum on all of american soccer and that's sort of what led this to be so chaotic. But yeah, like I don't think this is necessarily as bad with other fan bases or other clubs just because it, it was the perfect storm of just absolute chaos for everyone to be upset about. It's, it's very normal for countries where you have multiple one player to follow that team in a way. But, you know, like you said, you brought up Japan and Celtic. Uh, it's much easier to, to get along when everyone's winning. And Celtic does a lot of winning. And Leeds did pretty much no winning since Weston McKennie arrived in January. So, yeah, it was just everything that could have gone wrong did. And then you had too many Americans there and too many people blaming them. And that's how you kind of end up with this powder keg of nonsense on social media to the point where, you know, Weston's getting followed on his train home. You know, people are taking video. <laughs> like, it was just like they, it was one of those things where it was like you had fans telling him they couldn't wait for him to leave. But then he was getting blamed for leaving too soon. And it was just like. <laughs> That's just kind of what happens. Like you said, there's no rationale thoughts to any of this. He'll be good. It, it, it's good for him. We went all in, though. We really did. I mean, Leeds was getting all the TV spots. People who don't really watch the Premier League were somehow aware that Leeds was the most important team to the country. It, it just, yeah, it was it was everywhere. I do think that's part of it. Do you think Weston should stay in the Premier League, or do you, where do you want to see him go? So it seems, you know, which is a good thing, it's, it seems that he has options, uh, which is good. Despite all of the hate he has on social media, four different managers played him, which is a sign of how good he is. You know, like when Javi Gracia came in, Weston didn't get dropped. When Big Sam came in, Weston was still out there, which, is, which goes to show that there is some level of respect for his game, despite what the echo chamber of fans on Twitter will be saying. So that's good. Um, you know, you look at 
the suitors he had prior to Leeds. You know, I think it was Fulham and Aston Villa were like two of the clubs that he was kind of linked to. Both of those would be interesting. You know, I think, you know, you've seen Brighton as a club that's linked considering they're going to have their whole midfield bought this summer. So they're going to need a couple new midfielders in there. So, yeah, there are options. Um, the question is really is, is does Weston want to deal with the English media and fan bases again is that something that you know does he want to get back on that horse and deal with it again because it sounds like he does have suitors there does he want to go back to we'll say germany which would be a country that obviously has respect for his game just because they kind of saw him grow up with schalke is juventus still an option um who knows what's going on with them just because of the the financial situation and the punishments and everything like that they're sort of in limbo as well so, yeah, it sounds like he has options, which is good. So it's really going to come down to where does he think that he can develop as a player over the next three years? Because this is a big move for him. Because like we said, you have to make the right moves. And the World Cup's only three years away. And while his spot is pretty secure now, who knows where we are three years from now. So for him, this move, you have to get this move right if you kind of want to remain the guy in midfield for the U.S. as you kind of approach that World Cup on home soil. How about Tyler Adams? You know, you mentioned that he came out of this looking good. I think we should hold on to our victories. Leeds fans do still love Tyler Adams. Do you see a scenario where he stays, or is he definitely getting out of there? Uh, I I think he's way too good for the championship. I don't think he, he would benefit in the slightest from playing in the championship. He's a player that proved he can play in the Premier League. He's a player that proved that he could play at a high level in the Premier League. He's not just making up the numbers. He's a guy that can be a number six on a good Premier League team. So the question is, how much money is it going to cost for a team to make that happen? You know, does he get priced out of a move to maybe those mid-table teams because Leeds want too much? Does he get priced out of a move to, we'll say, the Bundesliga because Leeds want too much? You know, what what's, what's the number they're going to put on Tyler is sort of what makes it interesting. You know, I saw... You know, there was one rumor out there that Man United was looking, and it was like, could he be a starter for a club of that level? I don't know. But it's a good sign that there are there are teams of that caliber still looking because he has shown that he can play at a high level. He's still a young player, and there's, there's definitely a high ceiling for him. So, yeah, I think Tyler comes out of this looking okay. He'll have his suitors. The question is how much it's going to cost for someone to kind of take him away and, and what kind of caliber of club he can go to. But, yeah, somewhere in the mid-table to, you know, Maybe like, you know, one of the Europa League clubs or you know, a conference league club like a Villa or a Brighton. Like one of those clubs could totally use a Tyler Adams in their team. So, yeah, there should be no shortage of uh, suitors for him in England or wherever else uh, he wants to go. Thinking about other guys who play a big part in our national team picture, Serginho Dest is, you know, a joy to watch with the national team. He's really a key player for us in that starting lineup. But he now for two clubs in a row disappears he gets disappeared you know eventually or immediately first barcelona now ac milan can you make sense of of that why does serge disappear at these big clubs that he keeps signing for and where do you want to see him go so yeah so barcelona i think you could just write that off as he he could be a good player but he might not be barcelona quality which is not a knock on anyone, you know, when you look at Barca and sort of what the expectations are there, I don't think it's a horrible thing to say to say that a player isn't a starter for Barcelona. You know, like that's fine. For AC Milan, I think it was really just a case of no one involved being particularly invested in what was happening there and that AC Milan really had no reason to play him 
there was really no benefit to playing him, especially if they didn't think he was better than some of the guys they had in-house. Barcelona didn't necessarily care if he was playing because there was really no uh, investment from them, and, and that's kind of what leads to a position where Serginho is basically exiled, which is really unfortunate because it was basically a, a wasted year of club development. But I think for him, it's one of those things where you, you take a step back to hopefully take two steps forward and that he's he's a young player, uh, obviously still very much developing. You know, he has that attacking side to his game. The defensive side has gotten better. But yeah, like there's no shame in saying that a player who's, you know, in his early 20s might not be a guaranteed starter for a club the size of Barcelona. You know, you look at how many players have had similar crossroads in their career. You know, everyone points to like Kevin De Bruyne and Mo Salah at Chelsea, where it's like, yeah, they went there early. They couldn't break through. They took a step back. And then you look at where they are now. I'm not saying Serginho Dest is necessarily Kevin De Bruyne or Mo Salah, but that's one of the things that just happens when you join a club of that magnitude at such a young age. Sometimes it doesn't work out. I think the key for him is finding a club where he could get on the field regularly, where he can develop, where he can be not just a piece of the puzzle, but a key piece of the puzzle, and then go from there. And that's how you kind of rebuild your career instead of maybe taking a big swing at a place where you're going to end up in a similar situation once again, like he did with going to Milan. Gio Reyna is an interesting one for me when I think about people who could be moving or might need to move. He wasn't getting playing time. He was contributing when he was on the field. He'd come in, you know, in the 80th minute mark and score a few games in a row there. Do you think he needs to move from, from Dortmund or do you see his path as being one that he stays there and continues to work toward playing time next season? I wrote about this on goal recently, actually, because we, we had a big discussion about this and it was just like, well, why don't you write that? So like, that's kind of where we ended up with it. But I think this year, this coming season has to be the season for Gio if, if this is to happen at Dortmund. Um, obviously, the club very much took it easy with him. Terzic talked a couple times throughout the season about being patient with Gio and that, you know, they, they were afraid of him hurting himself again and, and dealing with all of this. And obviously, that's that was sort of the start of it. But the also part of it is that they have a lot of good attackers there and they have a lot of good pieces. And, you know, they were the team that probably should have won the Bundesliga if not for everything that happened on that last day. But yeah, when you look at Gio, it, it seems like he embraced that super sub role in a way that was healthy. It, you know, he made the best of it whenever he was on the field. I went through the numbers the other day and he had like the second best goals per game or goals per 90 in the Bundesliga. And he had the, I think it was the best goal contributions per 90 in terms of uh, goals and assists. And it's just like, yeah, the numbers are there. Like when he's on the field, he's making an impact. So I think you, for him, you go into the summer, you play the Nations League, you go to Dortmund, you have a full preseason. In the, they're coming to the United States. You get that, that hero's welcome in the U.S. as a kind of kickstarter for the season. I think this is the season where you have to kind of take the leap. Um, you know, Jude Bellingham's leaving, which leaves a hole in the midfield. Uh, in terms of central midfield, obviously different position, but there is room now to kind of take that space as the guy. You know, when you look at the guy who the young star who steps up in the way that Bellingham did in the way that Erling Holland did, you know, this is this is the time. So, yeah, I think with Gio, you give him this year to see where he ends up. Does he take the leap forward? Does he play his way into a bigger role? Does he continue to contribute at a high level? And if Dortmund don't necessarily see it that way, then you could kind of start thinking about what's next. And obviously, Gio's wildly talented. And I think there are a lot of teams that would love to be the team that helps him. But I think Dortmund is still the place for that, at least for one more year. And uh, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. But I think you roll the dice 
on Dortmund just because they have taken good care of him and it does seem to be set up for him next year to kind of stay, step in and, and play a bigger role than he did uh, in the closing stages of this one. BJ Callahan, now the interim manager for the U.S. men's national team, replacing Anthony Hudson, who departed like last week, has 24 guys in Carson, California at the minute ahead of next week's Nations League semifinal. And yesterday we had our first remote press conference, or I guess some people were in person. We were remote and we heard from Matt Turner and Christian Pulisic. What did you think? I mean, first of all, poor Matt Turner, who got maybe two questions out of 25 and the 23 questions that Christian got, a lot of them had to do with a tough time at Chelsea and and what next. What did you make of his demeanor and, and how he seemed to be kind of emotionally in that press conference? Uh, he seems relatively relaxed. I think he knows that it's a big summer for him and there's decisions to be made. But that's one thing he's always said is that when he comes to the national team, he gets a new lease on life in a way, you know, because you come to a situation that he's always found pretty healthy. He's allowed around a lot of his friends. He's he's able to kind of be the guy the way that he has and at Chelsea. So I think, in, and he said it a couple times that he loves these opportunities to be around the guys and to kind of step in and to kind of compete at this level. So, yeah, I think, you know, this is nothing but good for him uh, after everything that went on with Chelsea. I think it'll be good for him to get back amongst this group and to, to hopefully, you know, play some good minutes and to push for a trophy. So I think, yeah, it seems like it's uh, one of those things where he was saying that he, he'll think about his future after this camp. And, you know, normally you'd say that's BS, but I think you kind of believe him on this one because it, this, it is worth him just kind of taking that mental break from everything on the club level and focusing on the national team just because it is something that has always made him so uh, so happy. So, yeah, it, it seems like it's good for him to, to be here and uh, kind of get his, his self together before he could kind of rest, recuperate, and also, you know, mull over some big decisions about what he's going to do next on the club level. Yeah, I think being with the national team is a regenerative experience for him and several of these guys coming into camp. He was asked, you know, making the rounds now on social media is a comment that he responded to about Greg Berhalter. He was asked if he's still in the running and he said something along the lines of, sure, he should still be in the running. Do you, Are you making anything of the Nelson, a couple of comments Christian has made after the World Cup about, about Greg having done a good job? Do you think he is actually endorsing Greg Berhalter and wants him back? Or is he just, um, you know, giving us some PR speak and saying, yeah, he did a good job. He should be a candidate. Yeah, it's tough to read. Um, you know, part of me says that if if he really wanted to go full PR speak, he would have gone with, oh, I'll play for whoever the coach is. That's not my decision. You know, I'm a player and I'll be glad to play for whoever comes in. But so that there's part of me that says the fact that he is being so open about how much he respects Greg's work is definitely intentional. Uh, you know, I think this is, like you said, this is twice now that he's backed Greg and, and kind of stepped up and as the, the face of this program and as a leader in this program said, like, no, like, this is a guy I liked working with and there's a lot of us that liked working with him. So, yeah, I think that's it's interesting, you know, just because, like, the way the coaching search is set up now, you know, in theory, should know our, should know who the coach is in the next few weeks or months. Um, but, yeah, I think it, it seems like it was very intentional 
from Christian to, to mention that, whether that's something that U.S. soccer takes into consideration, considering all of the, the hoopla that went on around Greg and his exit, I don't know. But it seems like Christian, at the very least, is happy to play under Greg, that he enjoyed his time, and that in a hypothetical world where Greg were to be brought back, he would be pretty okay with it, as would a few of his teammates, if what he said is to be believed. So, yeah, it's interesting to watch and see if that's taken into consideration, but there's also the other side of it and wondering if Greg even wants to come back just because he's someone who's been linked to jobs in Europe. Does he want to deal with all of this again? Does he want to deal with the, the questions of what would go on with him managing Geo again? You know, is it even worth it for him to come back? So there's just so many moving pieces to it all, but it, it is interesting that, that now it's twice now, like you said, that Christian Pulisic has kind of put his foot down and said like, no, we like Greg here. So it's, it, it's an interesting thing and definitely something to watch as the summer moves on. So the U.S. will meet Mexico in nine days in Las Vegas. What are you looking forward to watching or expecting to see from from those two games? I think the obvious answer is Flo Balogun. I think everyone wants to see, one, how he fits in, and two, how quickly the U.S. tries to make him fit in. I think everyone in in the U.S. wants them to be like, all right, Flo's the guy, start him and play him 90 minutes every time he's out there. But there's also a little bit more nuance to this than that, you know, you don't want to just hand a guy the job necessarily and and you don't want to write off some of the other guys in the pool. So, you know, does Balogun start that first game against Mexico, you know, on form, like, yeah, probably, he probably should. But it'll be interesting to see, you know, how he fits with these players that he's obviously never played with um, under a coach that obviously isn't necessarily the real coach. Uh, tactically, how do you kind of handle things? So it really is an interesting time for him to see how he comes in. But yeah, I think, you know, you can look at the other 23 guys on the roster, but everyone's kind of focusing on that one guy right now just because it's the uh, new, shiny, exciting piece to this the big puzzle that uh, has been kind of missing that piece for a while. You know, I, I hate to give the obvious answer, but everyone's going to kind of want to see how he looks in those first few games and how he fits in with the group as things start. You know, he might not come out and score a hat trick in that first game, but you just want to see what he looks like next to some of these players because everyone's been making these fantasy lineups for the last six months, and it's finally time to see what it actually looks like on the field. So I think that's the most exciting part of it all. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it'd be very exciting if he did score a hat trick in that opening game against Mexico. Oh, Not entirely God. out it would of be, it the question. Twitter, Twitter <laughs> would melt. It would be absolute chaos on the social media. Uh, the the American flag and eagle emojis would be everywhere. So yeah, it would be uh, chaos. But yeah, like like you said, it's it's important to have perspective on it. You know, as a player plays his first senior international game. But yeah, it would be. Uh, Twitter melting if he came out and had a good game. Last question for you. How confident are you feeling about lifting that trophy and then the one that follows in, in the Gold Cup? It's a two-tournament summer for what will be likely very two-rotated U.S. men's national team sides. I'm I'm super interested in what this looks like because I think it's the perfect time to have that sort of split squad and that it's really going to be interesting to see what that Nations uh, League squad does in these games just because look it is you know these are meaningful games and those are going to be a little bit few and far between over the next few years it's going to be a lot of friendlies and you know obviously Copa America you know Gold Cup Nations but like you're having these big games against Mexico are sort of your 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 marks of of how well you're doing so yeah I think it is interesting to see how that team fares and then I'm also looking forward to the Gold Cup just because now is the time where you want to expand that player pool in a way that you can't necessarily uh, you know, a year before the World Cup or six months before the World Cup. You know, this is the time where you're going to see guys 
get that chance. You know, like you, I'm thinking of, you know, for example, like a guy that comes to my mind is like John Tolkien, you know, over the next year, how do we see him develop? You know, so when you look at that gold cup, you're going to see a lot of players in that, you know, like maybe like 20 to 25 age range. Um, maybe some of these U20 World Cup guys over the next year or so. And the next year is really about how many of those guys can kind of take the leap. And the gold cup for a couple guys is kind of going to be that chance to prove themselves. So, yeah, it's 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 twofold in that you're excited to see how the guys who are already there uh, gel and play together with this new piece in, in Flo Balogun. But you're also excited to see the gold cup where you have guys – that are sort of playing to take that next step, make that leap on their own, how they handle a tournament and how they handle competing for the national team. So they said it's an interesting summer between that and the transfers and, and everything else going on. So, yeah, I think the player pool come, you know, this time next year is going to look pretty different than it looked right now. So I think this is an interesting part as they kind of lay that foundation for the next three years, uh, especially with a new manager and coming at some point soon. Yeah, definitely a lot to watch and consider over the next few months and then coming year leading up to that Copa America, which we're going to be hosting, which is exciting stuff. Ryan, where can people keep up with your work? Uh, yeah, follow along on Goal. Obviously, like I said, it's a busy summer, so we'll be all over the place uh, in terms of covering everything American soccer and you know, between all of the nonsense going on with the national team, obviously it's a w- women's world cup year. There's so much stuff going on with that. You know, I actually, I had an interview with Alex Morgan dropped today. So there's just a lot of prep work going into that. Um, you know, European friendlies coming over, uh, Wrexham's playing over here. You know, there's just like, it's just absolute chaos in American soccer this summer. So yeah, follow along on goal and uh, yeah, just like enjoy it. Cause like I said, it's, it's fun to have these summers where there's so much going on and, there's so many uncertainties, you know, obviously a lot of big things will be happening this summer on, on the international and club level. So yeah, there's just a lot to kind of look forward to as we go through it all.